Well, good morning. What have I done here? Good morning. Uh, for those of you who, so some of you make use of the sheets in the back, the sermon notes sheet, you may have noticed that they were not there this morning. Uh, that is on me as I was preparing for the new members class. I just completely neglected to put them out. But I thought I would bring it up to use it as an excuse for all of us to be reminded that they're back there. Uh, so if it's helpful to you, every week we have, except for this one apparently, uh, we have in the back half sheets that just have the full outline of the, of the sermon. Uh, for many, many of us, that kind of thing is helpful to use and have in front of you as we're going through the text. So please know that that's back there uh, for you if, if, if that would be a help. Um, John chapter 10. We'll be looking at the last few verses of chapter 9 and moving into chapter 10. I almost worry about sounding redundant this morning because as we've moved through John's gospel, it seems like at each new chapter, we have noticed and have said some things about how much the intensity ratchets up and the specificity of what Jesus reveals about himself grows more and more clear, especially about his purpose and his identity. And we're going to say the same thing as we come into chapter 10. Uh, our Lord is going to publicly declare things that will surpass even what has been said up to this point. Surpass but not contradict, right? not at all. In fact, what we'll hear from him it just continues to clarify and confirm what he has been saying the entire time. And coming into chapter 10 this week, we, we have three main purposes for the next hour and they all center around this transition from chapter 9 into chapter 10. So we're going to do three things as we walk through this morning. The first thing we'll do is to take time to see how chapter 9 verses 39 to 41, last three verses of chapter 9, to see how that is a part of and leads into the picture that our Lord starts chapter 10 with. We'll do that first. Second, we will take some time to understand the overall organization of the first 18 verses of chapter 10. He's going to give a series of pictures, and we'll take a few minutes to understand what we're looking at before we come into them. That'll be second. Third, then, we'll get into the first of those pictures, the first five verses of chapter 10. So you see how all of this is centered around our transition from chapter 9 into chapter 10. Uh, let's begin by hearing all of this together. So I'll be reading uh, John, chapter, starting in chapter 9, uh, verse 39, and we'll read all the way down to chapter 10, verse 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains." 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll begin by looking at the last three verses of chapter 9. And let's remember what we have been seeing here. Jesus has just declared his identity as the Son of Man, the bringer of God's promises. It brings Daniel 7 to our minds. He has declared himself to be the Daniel 7 recipient of eschatological authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. He's just made, in other words, a messianic claim. And the man born blind, who had chosen Jesus' voice as the voice by which all should be interpreted, that man received it, and he bowed down before him. That's what we've just seen. The short exchange, then, that we find at the end of chapter 9 winds up being the setup for the pictures that our Lord gives to us in chapter 10. It very well transitions us from there into chapter 10. Look again at verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see... 
your guilt remains. For judgment I came into this world, he says. We've already heard a lot about judgment by now in John's Gospel, haven't we? And I would remind you that that word, judgment, can mean more than one thing, and even in the New Testament, even in John's Gospel, it means more than one thing at times. We can use it ourselves, judgment, to speak in terms of something like a legal declaration. And even more specifically sometimes, we can use the word to mean a negative legal declaration. You have been judged often means you have been condemned. Don't we use it that way? Uh, they did as well. Uh, but it doesn't always mean that. Just as often, judgment can be used simply to talk about making distinctions, evaluating, uh, revealing a set of distinctions. So when he said in chapter 7, verse 24, when he said, judge with right judgment, he wasn't talking about condemning. He was talking about having the ability to make wise distinctions and evaluations. And here in verse 39, Jesus says that he has come in order to create, or even you could just say to make plain by his coming, a certain kind of distinction. His coming makes clear, and in a way even determines, who can see and who cannot see. That's the distinction. That's the judgment that's manifested because the light of the world has come into the world. One thing I would have you notice in verse 39 is that there is blindness all around in the picture that he's painting there. Everybody he's describing in verse 39 is dealing with a blindness problem. His coming into the world has two effects. The first, he says, that those who do not see may see. What's the blindness problem with that group? Well, the blindness was there before his work, right? And as a result of his coming, now they see. They did not see, but he came so that they might see. So they have a blindness problem to be solved. The second group, he says, and those who see may become blind. Where's the blindness in this group? Well, if we only took this verse by itself, we could be hearing him say that the, in that case, the blindness is the result of his work. They could see before he got there, and now they can't see any longer. But as we keep reading, it's plain that's not what he's describing. If you continue and we get down to verse 41, we find that's not the case. That's not the problem, as he's pointing it out. Even in that second group, the blindness had always been there. Their problem was that they were claiming, they were insisting that they were not blind. Seeing these two groups set up beside each other helps us to understand how Jesus' coming, by necessity, creates the distinction he's talking about here. What we find is that he had come into this world as the light of the world, and he had come into a world of darkness. A world plunged in darkness. The people of this world walked in darkness. So as he encountered people, the only kind of people he encountered were blind people. People by nature blind to the light. People who could not on their own see. And when he came into the world, two things happened. To some, a new heart was given resulting in a will and affections that saw the light and wanted to come to that light. And when they did, well, what happens to someone in the darkness when they come to the light? Now they can what? 
Now they can see. But with others, they simply persisted in their love of the darkness so that when the light came, they fled from the light. We read earlier in John that they fled from the light because they loved their sin, and the light reveals sin, and so they fled. So the two groups here, and this is what Jesus makes clear in verse 41, are distinguished from each other based on their own settled sense of need. And functionally, in time and space, based on a chosen act of their will. At the Pharisees' question as to whether he's saying they are blind or not, are we too blind? Are we also blind? Jesus says to them, and let's read what they say, but let's interpret it as we read what Jesus is saying. Jesus responded to them like this, If you were blind, meaning here, if you were willing to admit your blindness, your need of light, then you would have no guilt. Why? Because recognizing the absence of light is what prompts one to value a light source. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Why? Because your claim of self-sufficiency is exactly what has kept you from entering the light. Now here's where we can see how these statements lead us into chapter 10. Because what, what has just happened here in these events on this day? The crowd of the blind man's neighbors have just brought the blind man to the Pharisees because that was the group that they trusted to discern and to guide faithfully. Something had happened that they had no sense of how to understand this, and so they came to, the, to those that they trusted. They brought the man to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were very happy to accept that designation of those to whom you ought to come. Because of all the Jews, they had the most exposure to the law of God. They were those charged to lead the sheep. They were those sitting in the seat of Moses. But what was the result here of trusting them? What was the result for this blind beggar whom Christ had healed? Well, the result of listening to those voices and trusting them is that this man is mocked, condemned, and cast out of the synagogue. That's what happened to him. True light had come to the people, and these Pharisees are doing all that they can to keep people from that light. And they're saying instead, trust us. We can see. Let us lead you. That leads us into chapter 10, because the main point of the chapter is going to have to do with competing claims by those who would seek to shepherd God's people. We just saw the result of the Pharisees' shepherding in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, we're going to get to hear a description of Jesus' shepherding. One man wrote this. He said, It is apt that immediately after Israel's shepherds have failed so conspicuously in the case of the man born blind, that we should have set forth the nature and functions of the good shepherd. And so in coming into chapter 10, we are not jumping into a new discourse. Even linguistically, it's been well noted that the phrase truly, truly, this truly, truly formula is never used to introduce an entirely new discourse. It always follows up on former teaching that's been right there. So the chapter break, you shouldn't let that confuse you. We're not jumping now into a new situation. 
But now that we come into chapter 10, let's begin to think about the second point for this morning. How should we organize the first 18 verses of this chapter in our minds? And this is pretty important. This is kind of like a pregame warm-up exercise before a sporting event. There really is some work that needs to be done here to prepare ourselves to see this correctly. And the reason for that is because what we're walking into here are three different pictures that Jesus paints all to the same end and, all that, sh- and, and, and that share the same imagery, but don't necessarily use the same imagery in exactly the same ways. You, can you see how this might not be as simple as it seems? They're not unclear pictures at all. But if we walk into them thinking, for example, that they're all one picture, if we walk into them misunderstanding what Jesus is doing, uh, that is going to affect how we, how we recognize how we understand the picture. And even our Bible translations help us with this sort of thing, using little things like paragraph breaks. Uh, not all of them do that in all the same places. So the Bible that I have open during the week is a New American Standard Bible. That Bible puts verse 11 as the start of its own paragraph, which is really helpful in this case. Uh, the, my ESV does not do that. But there are little ways that we can even structure this to help us recognize there are some different pictures he's painting here. Let's notice some things overall. Uh, follow me to a couple of places. Look at verse 6 first. After verses 1 to 5, we read in verse 6, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, So he uses one illustration in verses 1 to 5. Can you see that? And they don't get it. So then in verse 7, he starts another illustration. Not to make a different point, but to come back and help them see the point that he was making in verses 1 to 5. So in the first five verses there, Jesus himself isn't explicitly mentioned in the picture. There's no I statements in verses 1 to 5. But you have a true shepherd contrasted with a thief relating to the means of entering into the sheepfold. And you also have a voice that the sheep recognize and a voice that they don't recognize. That's what we have in the first five verses. And we'll see that later this morning. However, they don't get it, verse 6. They don't understand. So then, verses 7 to 10, he gives another picture, and we find Christ identifying himself now with the health of the sheep by calling himself, not the shepherd yet, but by calling himself the door of the sheepfold. That's the second picture he gives. Then third, in verses 11 to 15, he comes at this again, and he identifies himself with the health of the sheep, but that time by speaking of himself as the shepherd of the sheep. However, that time, he doesn't compare himself to a thief. He compares himself to a hired hand. But he also, in that third picture, brings up the concept, which we'll see was very familiar to them, of the sheep recognizing the voice of their shepherd, which is a point that he does make explicitly in the first five verses. So in other words, the points of verses 1 to 5 are going to be remade in two different pictures, verses 7 to 10, verses 11 to 15. This one was too hard for them, so he simplified it. He gave them two pictures. And I hope very much that we'll be able to see, by the time we've reached verse 18, how absolutely fitting this all is as a declaration about what just happened with the Pharisees and the blind man. 
There was a Bible commentator named J. Ramsey Michaels, actually passed away just a couple of years ago, very recently. But he said this about chapter 10. He said, two contrasts dominate the chapter. The contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus as shepherds of the people and the contrast between the Pharisees and the former blind man as recipients of Jesus' message. It's very helpful for us to see that there, are, there is more than one picture that Jesus, more than one point that he's making with these pictures. And he diagnoses and declares on both of those fronts as we see what he paints. Now with that in mind, we can, I hope, see the first picture correctly. So let's begin well, the rest of our time this morning, we'll be looking at that first picture in verses 1 to 5, or sort of 1 to 6. And a lot of this picture centers around his metaphor of what he calls the sheepfold. Verse 1, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. What is this sheepfold or this pen? Depending on your economic situation and your geographic situation, it might not look exactly the same. You can have a private family out there on their own could have a small private sheepfold or sheep pen, usually worked up against the side of their own home. But that was not the more common thing in this time. More common than that, for a number of reasons, you can imagine, practical, economic, was that these sheepfolds were something bigger than that. What they did was this. Several families would go in together and would keep their sheep in a single fold, a single large pen. It's got a number of advantages. You can go in together to hire someone to guard that instead of having to do that individually. So they would have jointly arranged then for their flocks, plural, to be guarded by the gatekeeper of verse 3. That really affects the mental picture that we have here as we hear how Jesus describes this. Because the shepherd in his story is being let into the sheepfold by a gatekeeper who knows him. And as he calls the sheep in verse 3, he's not calling all the sheep in that sheepfold. He's calling his own sheep. Verse 3, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This still happens up to the current day. And it really is a a very, uh, it's just, it's been enjoyable to read accounts uh, eyewitness accounts of this kind of thing take place. Uh, I'll share one with you. A man named H.V. Morton, this was from a 1935 publication. He had gone down to the area around Bethlehem, uh, and he recorded some of what he saw. This is one thing that he wrote. Early one morning, I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together, and the time had come for the shepherds to go in different directions. One of the shepherds stood some distance from the sheep and began to call. First one, then another, then four or five animals ran towards him, and so on until he had counted his whole flock. I saw another description of a different account with multiple shepherds involved, three or four who, when it was time to separate, stood apart from each other and each gave their own peculiar call at the same time. And within a matter of minutes, their flocks had been sorted out. The sheep hears the call that he knows 
comes from the voice who cares for him and ran to that voice. I th- the first thought I had was some of these guys need to come and help me to train my dogs because I only have two and they're not part of a group, but this is not working for me. So there's some things to be learned there. But what's emphasized in those stories and what's emphasized by Jesus is not some technique. It's that sheep recognize the voice of the one who is calling them to whom they belong. They recognize the voice. So this picture then is really showing us more than one thing at the same time. And when they don't get it, as we've said, Jesus paints two more pictures in what follows to make the points clear. And we'll see those things next week as we look at those two pictures. But already this morning, we should notice some things about what Jesus is saying to us here. He's making definitive statements, number one, about the nature and qualities of a true shepherd. And number two, about an inevitable connection between a shepherd and his sheep. And we'll spend the rest of our time this morning on those two points. I I think it might be helpful to think of them in these simple terms. We could say what we have here is we have two warnings. Verses 1 to 4, we have a warning about the Pharisees. And verses 5 and 6, we have a warning to the Pharisees. The first warning is a warning about the Pharisees. Let's go back to the question of the sheepfold here. In this story that he's telling, in this context, what is this sheepfold? Again, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. What is this sheepfold that he's speaking to here? One thing that's very helpful in in answering that is that he uses the same word again in verse 16. He mentions sheepfolds again. And his use in verse 16 helps us with this. He's going to say in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's the exact same word. I don't know why they decided to translate it fold instead of sheepfold. It's the same word. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what is this sheepfold in verse 1? You could say it like this, that the sheepfold in verse 1, if if we're thinking about the particulars of this entire interaction, the sheepfold of verse 1 is essentially Judaism. It's the covenant people of the Jewish nation. That's a sheep pen, and there are a lot of sheep in there, and some of those sheep are his, and some of them are not. There's another sheepfold, verse 16. The other sheepfold is, we could say, the Gentile nations. Some of those sheep are his, and some of them are not. And Christ is going to go to these folds and call his own out and lead them as one flock with one shepherd. So this pen, in verse 1, is the people of the Mosaic Covenant which we saw, I think, very clearly last year, maybe more than that now, uh, in Galatians, that the Mosaic Covenant, as a covenant people, the law that fenced in this people, served in that way, to fence in, to guard, protect that physical people, physical line of promise, until the promised seed came. We could say here, until the promised shepherd would come from among them to lead God's people. That covenant relationship itself did not 
by its own uh, ontology, you could say, bring its members to God. But it did protect them. And all along the fences of that covenant were most certainly instructive words of gracious promises, instructive words that revealed God's character. But that pen did not contain in a one-to-one way the flock of God. So that Paul can make those statements like, not all Israel is Israel. You are not saved by virtue of having a physical connection to the line of Abraham. That flock, the flock of God, will be revealed by seeing who will listen to the voice of the shepherd that God sends to gather his people. You will know his sheep because his sheep will hear his voice when he comes and calls to them. It's what God has sent him to do. God's chosen shepherd comes to lead his sheep. And where is he leading them? He's leading them to God. He's leading them to heaven. He is the way to the Father, isn't he? John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come back so that you can be where I am. We don't know the way. I am the way. He is the way. He takes his sheep, he calls them by name, and he leads them to God. He leads them. He doesn't stand behind them and drive them forward with the whip. He walks before them. And he calls and they follow because they hear his voice and they trust him. They recognize that voice as the voice to follow. The voice to follow for life. And follow we do. And he leads us through this life. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. But his sheep do not fear because we know that he is with us. These are not pictures and ways of teaching us that are unique to John's gospel, are they? This is what God has been telling us he was doing. And what he's explaining to them in verses 1 and 2 is that that pen, the sheepfold of Judaism, had a proper entrance. If I am to enter into the sheep by the gate, I'm going to do so in accordance with the scriptures. I'm going to do so by the way laid down by Abraham and by Moses. Those who seek to shepherd and ignore Moses are trying to get at the sheep by climbing the fence. And that's the best way to know someone who is a robber and a thief. If there's a proper way to access the sheep and that guy's feeling the need to climb the fence in the middle of the night, you can be sure that they are there for themselves. They're there to harm if they need to get at you by scaling the protective fence. This is very timely in light of the conversations we've been seeing between Jesus and the Pharisees and what was just done to the man born blind. There's a lot to say about that, and we'll get to those things next week. But I would make a suggestion. If you'd like to be prepared for Sunday, before the Lord's Day, in anticipation of what we'll do, one great way to do that this week would be to find time to read Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Our Lord says here, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Jesus has come to them with words and deeds that not only fit with the testimony of the Old Testament, but words and deeds that themselves everywhere complete and make sense of the Old Testament. 
They are, he is the very fulfillment of all that God has written. And opposed to that, what have we seen in the Pharisees? We've seen a group that has made an idol of their own power, that has commandeered Moses' name in order to wield his authority, but who blatantly violate the law of God when it suits them. John 7, 51. And a people whose hypocrisy, even the blind man, for example, has been able to see right through. This is not a people who care to shepherd the sheep of God toward God. Those who seek to control the sheep but who ignore Moses are getting at the sheep of this fold by climbing the fence. So in describing the difference here between a true shepherd and a robber thief, can you tell he is issuing a warning about the Pharisees? Now before we go to the second warning, it's worth pointing out here how helpful this picture should be for you and me in our own context today. Can you tell this is not just a warning about the Pharisees, it's a warning about anyone who would try to influence or direct us by scaling the fence of our sheepfold. When we hold up God's word as the supreme authority directing our lives, our very thoughts, our decisions, we are declaring a biblical worldview seated, grounded on the foundation of the scriptures as the gate to our pen. It was the gate to the pen when the Bereans in Acts 17 were given new information by Paul and they rejoiced and they proceeded to go immediately to the scriptures to test them to see if these things were so. Which is interesting considering that they're going to the Old Testament to consider, aren't they? And they see the fulfillment. God's word must be the gate to our pen. Now in terms of how that works itself out functionally, there are going to be some distinctions. Certainly there are things, uh, some things will have a direct connection there, and others will be maybe more indirect. We have clear commands and prohibitions in this book, don't we? We have clear statements about truth and about how the world works that directly guide certain situations. We also have scenarios in our life where we receive words and we must evaluate. There are the suggestions that a financial advisor will make about your money or that a barber will make about your haircut that are, you might say in a way, less directly impacted by what we have in the scriptures. And what will happen in those circumstances is that we'll make our choices there based on how the Bible has informed the wider realms, the realm of my Christian liberty, for example, uh, how the Bible has given me principles to guide my lifestyles. So with my financial advisor, I'll want to have in my mind a systematic theology of finances, for example. I'll want to know what God's word has said about saving versus investing versus generosity I want to be informed by God's word as I hear and evaluate and make choices. When my barber is talking to me, I'll want a, a systematic theology of self-presentation, maybe. And I'm assuming there's quite a bit of Christian liberty in the realm of choices and preferences there. But I will want to be informed as to how the Bible speaks to my self-presentation to the world. As a man, for example... I mean, there are scenarios 
The point is the identity of a Christian. Here's the point. The identity of a Christian is not a compartmentalized piece of our lives, is it? It is the flock to which we belong. We come and go. We go in, we go out. We decide how to think in all areas by virtue of the voice we have chosen to listen to. And it is the voice of our God. He who stands incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose voice is faithfully delivered to us in the scriptures, which are the very word of God. In everything we do, we are being led by a voice. And for the Christian, the gate to the pen is the word of God. Any who would seek to lead us, guide us, in a way that goes against, that ignores, that contradicts what we have received, they are trying to hop the fence to get to you. And we've been warned. Now, there's a second warning this morning. The first we said was a warning about the Pharisees. The second is a warning to the Pharisees in verses 5 and 6. But just like the first one was about the Pharisees, but really is about anyone who is fence-hopping to get to us. The second warning is to the Pharisees, but it doesn't only apply to them. The second warning is going to apply to anyone who, like them, was not hearing in Jesus' voice a voice to be honored and followed. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Look at the description he gives here. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This describes what just happened with the man born blind. He was brought to the Pharisees as the voice to listen to, and he quickly detects as he hears them that these are not men to be trusted. But by contrast, with Jesus' voice, such was his recognition of its trustworthiness that at at the most important question he could ever be asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? His answer was, you tell me who he is and I'll believe him. Such was the trustworthiness in that voice that he heard. Now, where do the Pharisees come into this metaphor? See, their place in this is that of sheep who hear him call, and two things happen. Number one, they do not follow. He calls, they ignore. And then if his call comes near enough to them to affect them personally, they turn and they flee. They don't know this voice. This is not the voice they trust. They ignore until they can't ignore, and then they flee. It's a very sad thing to see on display, but it's very telling when it comes to human nature and when it comes to what can often happen among us, what can happen in in our own lives. You can have someone coming to church week after week, sitting beside you for years. It seems fine. And then suddenly, some kind of nuclear bomb goes off in their personal life, and they're gone. And I don't mean gone from this local congregation. I mean gone from God's people. They flee from him. And when they flee, the fleeing is usually a very public and obvious thing. 
And since ignoring him is often much harder to see, the fleeing can come as a shock, can it? But you, you can take it to the bank. There is not a person in the world who turns and flees from Christ at a moment in time who had not been ignoring him for years leading up to that. And my friends, this is why the question of whose voice you're listening to right now, today, whose voice you're listening to regarding daily decisions, daily patterns of thought is such a crucial one. Because even if we're not fleeing from him right now, we may find that we are simply ignoring him. And if I am doing that, I can be sure that when his call gets more personal, more demanding, when he calls me to a place that looks fearful, I can be sure I'm going to flee from him. I don't prepare for that moment at that moment. I have been preparing for it for years as I have decided, one choice at a time, whose voice is trustworthy. Who really knows? Who really knows the paths of wisdom? Who really knows what would please God, the God who made me? You don't wait to train until the moment of action arrives, do you? And if I have a life pattern, in spite of anything I might say, in terms even of, of who I choose to tune into, in a, in a day of media influencers or whatever, we have no shortage of voices to listen to, to tell us how to think about a number of things. If I have a life pattern of developing habits, of listening to certain voices that do not bend the knee to the scriptures, that would have me ignore the call of Christ on my life, even when it's painful. I am being trained to flee from him when the cost is high. So God's word reveals to us something to consider this morning. What has he called to you? What has he called you to personally? I mean, specifically in his word, in the spheres that he has placed you. What has he called you to as an employee? as a child, as a parent, as a wife, as a husband, as a church member. And I mean, not just in terms of the things to do, but in terms of how to think about that realm at all. When is the last time that you checked what he has told you to think about those realms? When's the last time you checked and remember the path that your shepherd has called you to walk. In the end, none of us will be saved. I trust we know this. None of us will be saved because of any good, right things we have done in this life. That is not how salvation comes to us. We're not saved by our own righteousness. We are saved by our shepherd, who we'll see next week, has laid down his life for the sheep. But my friends, he did that as a shepherd who guides his sheep in the path that he has chosen for us to walk. And that path looks a certain way. He does not lead us in paths of wickedness or uh, unrighteousness or pride or any of those things, does he? 
He leads us on the good and faithful and safe path. And following after our good shepherd will and does come down to choices that we make every day of our lives. How do you know if you're walking in his ways? Well, the answer is found here in verse 4. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. In any given situation, there are other voices who tell us of a better way, of a different way. But when his sheep hear his voice, they know they are listening to the voice of safety and authority, the voice who loves them. Praise God that he has given us a shepherd that is able to lead us all the way home. And be reminded of that this morning. He's promised. He's promised to lead us all the way home. Is his the voice that is trustworthy? And may we be faithful to remind each other always to listen to the voice of our shepherd who loves us and gave himself for us and to follow him. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect on the shepherd that has come and shepherded a people in these passages, we know, Father, that he has come as a demonstration of the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have sent him on this mission. He has come joyfully on this mission. And we thank you, Lord God, that such is your strength and your power and your sovereignty that your mission is sure to succeed. Father, help us this morning to be reminded and refreshed in our confidence that your ways are perfect, that no one thwarts your purposes. No one's hand is so strong that, we could, that those who belong to you could be taken from your hand. I pray for our children. Lord, who we're so thankful that you have given to the families of this body. God, we thank you for placing them in a context of a people who know the voice of safety and goodness. God, please give them many opportunities from a young age to sense and even to see, in an age-appropriate way, to see just how perilous are all the other voices who might sometimes sound so persuasive, but whose way in the end leads only to death. Father, for their sake, we ask that you would protect and equip and strengthen and keep our eyes on our shepherds so that we might lead them well, we might teach them well, for the sake of one another and our own safety, we pray this. Ultimately, Lord, we ask this for the sake of your glory. We exist only to bring you glory. And what a high and lofty purpose that is. Thank you, Father. All these things we pray to you this morning. In Jesus' name, in the name of our good shepherd, we pray. Amen.